This is the Eurasian Enigma from the Davis Center. The Davis Center. The Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Eurasian Enigma. My name is Chris Martin and I'm the Outreach Director at the Davis Center. To many people, Afghanistan conjures only images of war and the proverbial graveyard of empires. But this view leaves out important parts of the story. During long stretches of a modern history, Afghanistan was at peace, and Soviet and European rivalry played out through opposing ideas about international development and humanitarian aid rather than through tanks and guns. Our guest today, Timothy Noonan, brings these fresh insights into the relationship between Soviet Cold War ideology and aid in the so-called Third World and what this reveals about Russia's foreign interventions today. Timothy is a scholar of international and global history, although he focuses particularly on the history of Russia, Eurasia, Iran, and Afghanistan. He has just completed a rotation as a Harvard Academy scholar at the Harvard Academy of International and Area Studies. He's the author of the recently published Humanitarian Invasion, Global Development in Cold War Afghanistan. Timothy, thanks for joining us today. Thanks. It's a pleasure, Chris. So your book deals with the history of how ideas about international development and humanitarianism played out in Afghanistan from the beginning of the Cold War to basically the start of the Taliban rule in the the 1990s. And you take issue a little with the historiography of Afghanistan as being the graveyard of empire. Why is that? And what do you see as the more realistic alternative to that framing? Sure. Well, we have a common picture of Afghan history as being defined by foreign interventions, where there's usually a couple of quick victories, the march to Kabul, but then things go awire, and the army ends up getting uh, kicked out and and following its tail uh, back home. And there's a good reason why we have this framing. The British engaged in three wars in Afghanistan in the 19th century and early 20th century, and of course the Soviet Union, a major player in this book, occupied Afghanistan for about a decade in the 1980s and ended up uh, accomplishing very few of its goals. So there's a reason why we have this framing as Afghanistan as the graveyard of empires. However, as I try to explain in humanitarian invasion, most of Afghanistan's modern history is not defined by these moments of occupation or, or graveyard of empires moments. Rather, there's long, long stretches that we need to account for and that I think are actually more important and help us explain what happened during those periods like the 1980s when the Soviet Union is engaged in the country. For example, between 1919 In 1979, Afghanistan is at peace, and in fact, it becomes a hub, really, for international development aid from both the socialist bloc as well as from the capitalist world. And so I think that in order to understand Afghanistan history, we need to understand what's going on in that big chunk of time between these two classic graveyard of empires moments. Um, And that also helps us explain what happens when the graveyard of empires moment appears to be coming back in the 1980s. In the introduction of the book, you address this idea that Afghanistan doesn't have a regional home. It doesn't fall squarely into South Asian studies, Middle Eastern studies, or even Central Asian studies. And you argue, perhaps as a result of that, that there's a greater need to orient history around transnational themes rather than regional state groupings. You've done this in your book, and I'm curious, what would you say this adds to conventional narratives of Soviet and Russian history, which focus on events like civil wars, policies like NEP, Stalinism, etc.? Well, I I think clearly there's a need both in research and in teaching to continue to focus on the mainstream themes uh, that you discussed, um, Stalinism, uh, the thaw, perestroika, um, et cetera, et cetera. What I think that a focus on these transnational themes adds to our understanding of the Soviet Union is that it helps us see how the Soviet project was understood in different parts of the world, Uh, not only in a European theater, not only in places like Prague and Budapest, where because of 1956 and because of 1968, we have an increasingly better understanding of what Soviet socialism meant to Europeans, 
but it also helps us understand what the Soviet project meant to audiences elsewhere uh, throughout the world. And for Afghans, I argue, the Soviet Union was particularly important. I mentioned earlier that during the Third Anglo-Afghan War in 1919 and 1920, uh, the Afghans effectively beat the British or secured sovereignty uh, from the British Empire. You had an exhausted British Empire, think of Ireland at the same time, but Afghans gained sovereignty or gained independence from the British. But there's a problem. They needed international recognition from other powers, especially powers that were hostile uh, to British power. But Afghanistan remains this rather obscure, remote country in the middle of Central Asia. But lo and behold, it's the, it's the Soviet Union that provides the first diplomatic recognition to Afghans. And in a sense, it's, Soviet, it's through Soviet recognition that Afghanistan, this otherwise barely functioning state, can really enter the international system as a fully sovereign, recognized state. And obviously, that's a theme that continues later into the 70s and 80s into the book. And so when we're writing about European history, about Prague, we might write about you know, Soviet anti-fascism and the ways that imaginations of the Soviet Union as a specifically anti-fascist power had very deep resonances within the European left and obviously among European communists. What I'm trying to do, however, is to point out that there's an additional story to that when you look at the Soviet Union through the lens of Kabul or through the lens of Tehran, where now it's about the Soviet Union as an entry point and, and as a kind of breakout point into the international system. And much later, it's uh, Soviet socialism as an alternative to Sunni Islamism in the case of Afghanistan. So you mentioned that the, the USSR is the first to recognize um, Afghanistan. What was their vision for what Afghanistan could be, what it could be in relation to who they were? And what was their vision for the third world as it played out in, in the Afghan theater? The, the initial Soviet recognition, I, I think, figures into this early moment of Soviet engagement with what we today would call the Islamic world. Countries like uh, Turkey, um, the Soviet Union um, is one of the first countries to recognize and have an embassy in, uh, in Saudi Arabia in the 1920s, uh, although relations die in the 1930s. And as I said, it's the first country to recognize Afghanistan, uh, one of the first to recognize Iran as well. And this figures broadly into a moment of trying to turn anti-British and anti-colonial sentiment to the Soviet Union's advantage around uh, the world. As I mentioned earlier, this is a moment where British imperialism is being stressed throughout the globe. But more than that, in the wake of failed socialist revolutions in places like Budapest, in places like Munich, uh, the murder of Rosa Luxemburg and other German socialists in, in these big, important European countries, there's also a broad moment where people like Trotsky are saying, well, the road to revolution might not go through Budapest or Berlin, and if that's the case, we're going to have to make sure that it goes through Peshawar, that it goes through Kabul, that it goes through these, these, anti, these, these colonial theaters. And more broadly still, this fits into a larger tension within the Soviet project in the world between capitalism and imperialism. One of the classic ideas uh, within Marxism-Leninism is that imperialism doesn't just exist for its own sake. It's not just about, say, white colonialists oppressing Indians or oppressing Africans just because they're racist or just because of reasons of racial hierarchy, but rather that imperialism is itself an expression of the need of finance capital and industrialism and capitalist industrialism in the European metropole to expand and then take over these areas. So there's also an ideological aspect to this. It's not just pure geopolitics. You do devote a, a good amount of time to looking at case studies of a lot of the Soviet engineers and other um, sort of builders. What did they actually bring to Afghanistan during this period in the 1960s and the 1970s? So in many cases, they, they brought a huge amount of material infrastructure. And one of the things I try to focus on, at least in one of the chapters of this book, is to emphasize the kinds of objects and materials that were brought from the Soviet Union. And I mean that um, in a very uh, literal down-to-earth sense. Um, in some cases, dirt, uh, soil, was transported from Uzbekistan to uh, state farms 
in Jalalabad in eastern Afghanistan. Um, in other cases, uh, strains of olive plants, olive trees, were brought from Azerbaijan to be planted in those same soils in these state farms um, in Jalalabad. So there's this large and very literal granular transportation of sort of Soviet industry or Soviet agriculture to these theaters. But more broadly, there's an attempt to build in Afghanistan this kind of state capitalist regime um, in the 1960s and early 1970s. And as scholars and colleagues like Jeremy Friedman have shown, this fits into a broader moment within Soviet outreach to the third world, where the idea is it's okay if these post-colonial elites are not necessarily socialists or Leninist communists themselves. It's okay if they're post-colonial bourgeoisies, or in the case of Afghanistan, even monarchs uh, who are clearly not uh, communists. But we're going to build this state capitalist infrastructure, a strong public sector, and so we're going to build these state farms, we're going to build dams that will be owned and operated by the state, and so on and so forth. This vision later proves to be disappointing, and Soviet engineers and Soviet economists come to the conclusion by the mid-1970s or so that this is not actually leading a transition to socialism, and if that's the goal, something else might have to be done. But that's the broad message of the book, these heavy industry projects like gas extraction, dams, roads, bread factories, and of course military aid too. The Soviet Union trains the Afghan officer corps from 1955 until 1992. Obviously the Europeans, the Western Europeans, play a large role as well, and they bring different things to Afghanistan. They bring more ideas and policies, things that are much less tangible. How much of what they brought, and you can explain what they brought to this to this theater, was a reaction to the Soviets, or was it a reaction to larger global themes? As you mentioned, there was a there was a strong fear, especially in the mid-1950s, that the Soviets were engaged in a so-called aid offensive across much of the Third World. Um, colleagues like Alessandro Oyandolo have, have focused on this theme, uh, looking at other theaters like Guinea um, in West Africa, and obviously the Cuban Revolution uh, a bit later is a, is a massive turning point. Um, in the case of Afghanistan, though, the idea is that, oh no, this is sort of Peter the Great's uh, apocryphal testament of the, the eternal Russian drive towards the warm waters of the Persian Gulf, beginning to express itself again. And Afghan leaders uh, like Muhammad Dawood Khan are dubbed the Red Prince for, for supposedly being socialists, even though uh, they're not really. And so both Americans, as well as West Germans, as well as many other smaller countries, begin to engage in Afghanistan during the 1950s and 1960s through aid projects like hydrological aid, dam building in southern Afghanistan on the part of the Americans, and forest management projects in eastern Afghanistan on the part of the West Germans. And I go into a lot of depth explaining why these projects were conceived, um, what sort of visions of an Afghan state or Afghan society they had embedded in them, and the different ways in which they maybe not failed, but also brought unintended consequences uh, with them. The broad theme or the broad take that I try to offer, though, is that both the Soviet projects as well as the American and West German projects end up supporting a certain vision of Afghan nationalism as Pashtun irredentism. Uh, Pashtuns, it bears remembering, are the largest ethnic group within Afghanistan, although there's some debate about whether they constitute a, uh, there's certainly a plurality, but there's debate about whether they constitute a majority. And essentially, in the mid-20th century, the Afghan government was sponsoring the claim that Basically, half of Pakistan should be a new Pashtun country. Um, there are more Pashtuns who live in Pakistan than live in Afghanistan. The Soviets end up sponsoring this claim. And so there's a fear that the Soviets are going to destroy this garrison state that we've built up in Pakistan. But likewise, the Americans and West Germans never really contest this claim or evaluate, you know, what are we doing by saying Afghanistan is a Pashtun state when it's maybe only 50 percent 
Pashtun. And so the kinds of projects that they end up sponsoring are very much designed to promote Pashtun development or, or say, look, the, the Afghan government can can promote Pashtun's well-being more than it, more than the Pakistani government can. And so they end up creating a really toxic set of irredentist and nationalist claims in this setting uh, that later fuse with ideas of socialism. And that's where the Afghan, it's partly where the Afghan Communist Party of the 1980s comes from. Right, and as these vectors play out, we have the Soviets bringing in this, these development, these large-scale development projects. You have the Europeans bringing in these ideas through nonprofit groups, through yep. NGOs. They intersect on the ground, and then of course you have the war. You have the Soviet in, in invasion of Afghanistan. And at the end, what what really took hold from any of this? Well, it bears mentioning that throughout the 1980s, Soviet development hardly stops. If anything, of course, Soviet development aid to Afghanistan ramps up and it becomes more intensive. And, and there's this attempt to build, in effect, a clone uh, regime within Afghanistan and Soviet-style institutions of youth management of a deep mass party uh, on the local level in Afghanistan. And so you have this... Uh, very complicated situation throughout the 1980s, where at the same time, the Soviets are trying to build up this mass party on the ground in Afghanistan. The humanitarian organizations in whose archives I researched for the book are building these parallel organizations through the seven main opposition parties, the Sunni fundamentalist parties based in Peshawar, they kind of intersect spatially within Afghanistan um, itself. So there are these two sort of parallel networks of Soviet kind of mass uh, top-down aid and then these more nimble or more spatially nimble um, humanitarian organizations that penetrate the countryside throughout the 1980s. By the end of the decade, of course, uh, the Soviets are in retreat. Uh, There's no financing to sustain these youth organizations in the middle of nowhere in these Afghan provinces. Um, And you have this humanitarian governance structure that funds schools, funds medical facilities, funds veterinary aid, etc., stretching throughout the countryside. In some senses, very little has changed. Afghanistan is still one of the largest recipients of of aid and neighboring Pakistan is one of the largest hubs for NGO operations in the entire world. So Afghanistan's sort of fundamental role as a locus for development aid doesn't really change that much. What does change dramatically is the role of an Afghan state in affecting that aid and the role of state-to-state relations. Uh, One of the most striking things I found in working in archives and working in databases of these humanitarian organizations was that by the early 1990s, many of the medical organizations for these NGOs that were based in Peshawar were subcontracting their projects to Afghan ministries. Um, In other words, the Afghan state itself was serving as a kind of subcontractor uh, to these these humanitarian organizations, uh, which I think really testifies to the fact that the Afghan state had largely withered, had very little influence, and was essentially just another competitor on the scene for aid coming from the UN and coming from European donors uh, throughout. Given all of this, the fact that Afghanistan is one of the largest recipients of humanitarian aid, a lot of people label it a failed state. Would you agree with that characterization? And what do you see as the role of this potential failed state in a globalizing world and economy? I don't think that the concept of failed state is particularly helpful because it, it sort of stops the conversation uh, rather than, I think, leading us to deeper historical questions that could potentially explain why are the institutions in this place problematic and why do we why do we have the sense of having seen this film before um, in the case of Afghanistan. And as I try to show in the book, and perhaps a parallel uh, from more familiar contexts might help, one of the reasons why Afghan elites were so interested in this idea of Pashtun irredentism um, in the 1960s and 1970s was that over over the course of uh, about a century and a half, 
what had been the Afghan polity had lost its most prosperous and, and wealthiest territories in what was uh, to become Pakistan due to the formation of Pakistan. It's true that Afghan rulers also lost a lot of wars to the Sikhs um, in, the, uh, in the 19th century as well. But part of the reason they were promoting these irredentist claims was to have more access to lands uh, like in the Punjab, uh, to places like Karachi, um, etc., that had been the financial and really economic heartlands of previous Afghan polities. And so another way to look at this is if we, you know, take the United States, for example, and say, okay, uh, we're just going to cut the, cut the United States down and now it's only going to be, um, you know, North Dakota and South Dakota on its own. Well, you know, a landlocked South Dakota or a landlocked Nevada uh, is probably not going to be the most successful state in the world. It's probably likely to have dysfunctional uh, nationalist politics, too, because it might feel cut off or they might feel they lost the rightful territories um, and so on. And that's kind of the situation that you have in Afghanistan, uh, taking the long array perspective. And just looking elsewhere within the region, it's important to remember that, you know, none of the particular, none of the surrounding states around Afghanistan are, are particular models of successful statehood as well. So I think some appreciation of what the actual possibilities are for non-failed states, given the geography, the economies, et cetera, is, is important. So you conclude your book with um, a statement that developmentalism appears to be disappearing, replaced with the brutal scramble for resources and influence. It harkens back to your previous statement as well about the, just the geography of, of what Afghanistan is, is dealing with as well. But what do you think that means for the future? Well, in, in some ways, the scene today is, uh, is, is a bit reminiscent of the 1960s, although if anything, it's, it's more complicated in that you have a multipolar I mean, the 1960s was obviously classically bipolar in the sense of being a Cold War world, but increasingly we're looking at a region surrounding Afghanistan with powers like Russia that might not have might are very distant from it now, but still have a security interest due to opium flows. Um, we have China, which is trying to develop its one belt, one road scheme through Pakistan and secure access to copper mines in Afghanistan. And India, likewise, is trying to secure access to iron ore mines. In, in central Afghanistan and trying to connect those mines through roads to ports in Iran. And so in some ways, it's a it's a very different world in that it's more multipolar and, and less governed by the kind of iron logic of the Soviet Union versus the United States of the 1960s and 1970s. But we're also seeing a world that in some ways is familiar with different countries and different players trying to affect development aid uh, in, in, in Afghanistan, although more and more it seems less about developing a really stable, sustainable Afghan state that can stand on its own two feet. And more about finding the mix of providing just enough security to, you know, to prevent Kabul from falling or to prevent these copper mines from being totally insecure and hence being able to extract um, your, uh, your investment uh, in them. So what I fear is, is that, you know, the U.S. military presence is still ongoing. But what I fear um, is that there essentially will be this this lack of commitment to any kind of future for for an Afghan state and just uh, great powers throughout the region uh, trying to secure their own influence for their various projects or for their various interests in different parts of the uh, of the country itself. For my last question, I want to bring it back a little bit to uh, a little bit more of a focus on Russia, sure. based on the the history, yeah, um, yeah. Soviet history. So. How can studying the history of Soviet nation building and their efforts and military support to Afghanistan in the 80s, as you detail in the book, how can that help us understand present day Russia's interventions abroad? Sure. I think that one area in which this helps us understand the current Russian intervention in Syria, maybe not in the specifics, but just the broad way of how Russian power has viewed the world and how Russian power has engaged with internationalism 
is the, the Soviet intervention in Afghanistan and, and the, the Soviets in Afghanistan and Soviet diplomats at the UN would often emphasize this is an act of collective self-defense, uh, which, like it or not, is a uh, is an act secured in the UN Charter and is, is legal under an international law. Countries can request aid from other countries to be defended uh, from third-party states. And the Soviets and the Afghans in the 1980s constantly talked about an undeclared war being waged on them from Pakistan by these transnational Sunni uh, jihadist movements, uh, not fundamentally dissimilar from what's happening against the Assad regime in Syria today. Um, and so I think one of the parallels involved, and one thing that we might learn is that while, while there can be this cliche about Russia being a revisionist power and wanting to you know, create Novo Russia or trying to you know, displace the United States in, in the Middle East or, or something like that, um, I think it's also important to remember that Russia values, I think, its presence at the UN, that international law is something that Russia has valued, some would say maybe exploited. Um, but in many ways, the Russian intervention in Syria today is framed within uh, orthodox international law. And, you know, like it or not, the, the attempt by the United States to attack Syrian targets from Iraq, uh, saying that non-state actors in Syria are threatening Iraq, therefore the United States, a third country, is going to attack Syria. You know, it's this very convoluted reasoning. It's not, it's not as enshrined and it's not recognized, to my knowledge, in international law to the same extent that collective self-defense is. So, you know, we can certainly debate the merits or the, uh, the future of the Assad regime in, in Syria and, and so on, and that's something that, uh, above all, Syrians themselves should be doing. Um, but I, I think once we introduce great power interventions into the mix, um, you know, I think if internationalism or international law is going to mean anything, it should mean something. I, I think Russia, you know, as, as a important power, but clearly not the most important military power in the world, I think it, it values these international arrangements and it will try to, to work within them. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today, and best of luck. Thanks. Thank you.